0: We can't preserve everything. We just don't have that capacity. We need resources. Everything you choose to preserve is an obligation that takes resources and know-how and a strategy in order to implement and carry out.
1: Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Susan Carey, Registrar and Collections Manager for the Archives of American Art.
2: And I'm Lindsay Bright, Library Technician. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation.
1: What does it mean to preserve art? Works of art exist as physical objects that degrade over time, and they're also represented and replicated through images, models, and memories. Museums, archives, libraries, and galleries preserve cultural heritage, both by protecting objects and by encouraging conversations around those objects. Here at the Archives of American Art, That means stewarding our collections to foster research and wonder in the rich history of the visual arts across the United States. Our institution is one of many that participate in and perpetuate culture by holding on to the past so that the future might learn from it.
2: In this episode, we will think about conservation broadly. What does it mean to maintain and cherish our artifacts, ideas, and heritage? We spoke with Laura Mina, a textiles conservator, about what her work entails in caring for objects in all their facets. As a textile conservator, my job is to be a caretaker
3: for textiles that are considered part of cultural heritage. So that's different than taking care of textiles that are part of cultural use most of the time. So the easy way of thinking about that is that I do my laundry like everyone else does their laundry. But for the textiles that are considered part of our cultural heritage, they get treated a little bit differently with a little bit more care. And I'm a big fan of science fiction writing, so the way I think about my job is that these cultural heritage textiles are going to travel through time, and it's my job to help them along that journey. So I'm sort of part of a network of care that goes, it really starts with the creator of the textile, and then all the people who used and cared for it in the past, and then I get to spend some really special time with the textile. And then I want to send it off into the future so that lots of other people can enjoy it, um, discover new things about it, I hope, and just have their own opportunities with it. So when I think about conservation and how to achieve that, that time travel, it kind of fits into three different categories of research and work that I do. To be a conservator means that you need Specialist training in chemistry to understand on a chemical level what's happening both with the textiles and different ways in which those textiles might deteriorate. I also need to know about mechanics. Uh, One of the great textile qualities is flexibility and how they move. And so I want to understand stress and strain. What are the properties that that textile needs to function and to, to be all that it's meant to be? And then how can I help? support and preserve that. And then the cultural context of textiles is also always super important. And that could be really different for two really similar textiles. So for example, with one textile, it might really be all about the creator's original intention. And so my work might be to make that creator's original intention, what is the most accessible aspect of that textile, which can mean making it look um, as new as possible again. Or the significance of a textile might be the way it had been used. And so something that might look like a stain or might look like damage on the textile could actually be part of what makes it so special and so important within a collection. So my work is also that balance of preservation and access. I don't necessarily want things to be used up. But I do want them to be used. I do want them to be accessed. But I want it to be done in a way that prolongs um, that journey into the future for
2: them. The mortality of objects is often on artists' minds as they create. Here's quilt maker Joyce Marcus Carey in conversation with Glenn Adamson in 2002, describing how she conceptualizes the life cycle of material in her work.
4: In fact, I'm planning to make a piece. It's down the line here someplace in my future called ephemera because of the issue that came up in my last exhibition of light fastness and things disintegrating in the light and the feeling that I had that I don't necessarily want my, I don't intend for my work to last for a million years anyway. Nothing lasts for a million years. It's all relative. You know, maybe if you're carving in stone and it's not exposed to the weather and nobody comes in with a sledgehammer, it's going to last quite a long time, but all work, everything, Disappear sooner or later. So I was thinking maybe instead of going toward worrying more about making things last longer. Should go toward making things that don't really have much of a life. Mm. You know, it just, you have your moment. And I was thinking of things like, I love flowers and gardening. And thinking of things like the spring wildflowers, you know, they have their moment. It's so short. It's gone. You've got to wait a year. That's it. Or dragonflies, mm. things like that, but just ephemera.
3: So what would the piece be?
4: I don't know. But I would like it to have more at least a feeling of being fragile and not so precious mm. as the pieces that I make, which are sort of beefy in a way. You know, They're really substantial.
5: Mm.
4: Everything's so down.
2: That's an interesting thing because it, it seems like what you make is actually quite not permanent, but... It's quite substantial, it's a lot more like painting than it is like dancing or one of the performative arts.
4: It is more like painting, but painting is ephemeral also true
2: mm-hmm.
6: right as any conservator would tell you yeah, I'm
4: sure
2: other artists keep their eyes on the horizon. glass artist Judith Schechter voices her hopes for the enduring physical and cultural significance of her work in her two thousand and eleven oral history.
7: I hold myself to these ridiculous standards, so I'm often really hard on it, but I, uh, I hope that it stands up and I think it's just a chance you have to take. It's a craft shoot. Mm-hmm. My gambits are figuration, mm-hmm. that's not going to go out of style until we mutate. <laughs> Sensual beauty, not going to go out of style till we mutate. Mm-hmm. And light, not going to go out of style until we leave the solar system mm-hmm. and mutate so i think i'm safe um that's (laughs) those those are the things that i think um i think every artist if you're going to compete on that level you have to encode your work it has to be embedded with um in orders to be preserved otherwise people are going to throw it out you know let's take for example they dropped neutron bombs so that the buildings and objects are preserved and the people go away and then like 2,000 years from now, they dig up our culture and what are they going to call our art, I mean television, <laughs> assuming that survives, um, and and uh, objects and stuff are going to survive and uh, I think some art is going to be indistinguishable from the heaps of rubble that inevitably happen. Mm-hmm. So I want my work to be preserved. I definitely want my work to be preserved. So I try to make things that people might want to preserve. And I don't care if it's the people who live in New York right now. I want it to be, I, I'm trying to think universally. What are the things that uh, appeal to people universally? And I, that's maybe why I got interested in the idea of, of uh, beauty not being in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm which is not possible to prove <laughs> It's definitely in
1: the holder conservation evolved dramatically as a field over the 20th century in step with advancements in chemistry and microscopy, and it was also buoyed by increasing institutional interest and investment in the preservation of art and artifacts. George Stout was a pivotal figure in painting restoration and conservation throughout the century. Though he's more famous now for his role with the Monuments Men, a group that reclaimed artworks seized by the Third Reich during World War II, and whose stories are vivified in the 2014 George Clooney film, Stout's commitment to preservation invigorated the discipline for decades. Here's how he described his conservation work at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in his 1978 oral history interview with Paul Karlstrom.
8: What about some of the great objects in the Gardner Museum? You, uh, I gather from what you say that you were very much involved in Essentially, maintaining the collections, and you also had an opportunity to work directly in conservation and so forth. Did you Did you ever have uh, the opportunity to work uh, on, uh, say, the great uh, Titian, the Rape of Europa, or, or you know, some one of the star pictures?
5: Well, uh, we did work on many. Eh? Uh, the Rape of Europa. The only thing we did to that was to rebuild the frame, so that you could take the picture out. On the front, without having to take down that great, (laughs) heavy frame, and in the event of an emergency, I see you had to evacuate it. There were certain steps that could have been taken towards its preservation, but I've always stuck to the general rule: do what you need to do when it needs to be done Mm -hmm. in conservation. If things are all right, if they're not grossly misrepresented by their state at the moment. Let's just not tear into them and disturb them.
8: Wouldn't one work with a certain amount of trepidation, though, in an instance, uh, a case like that? Although, again, I suppose it's like a surgeon. Sure, a, a misstep or a slip could uh, be terminal, could be fatal for a human being, or in this case, for a work of art. Is that something that is very much in mind as you uh, remove uh, overpainting, uh, varnishes?
5: I don't know how to uh, describe the feelings that one has in doing that. You've done all you can to learn what's there ahead of time. Mm -hmm. You're never absolutely sure. You're convinced that something has to be done And soon, otherwise you wouldn't do it. But you go ahead. And I suppose there is, you're never free. from that feeling of, almost of guilt, at digging into a fine work. All you can say is that it's got to be saved, and this is one thing that I'm convinced has to be done to Mm -hmm. If your fear and guilt are... Overwhelming, I suppose you wouldn't be able to do it.
2: For Stout's generation, restoration meant recuperating and maintaining the artist's original intentions above all else. Carol F. Wales, a conservator who specialized in Byzantine art, trained under Stout and worked with him in the Boston area. In his 1992-1993 oral history interview with Robert F. Brown, Wales echoes the principles prized by Stout, while detailing the process of cleaning a varnished oil painting.
9: There's a, there's a matter of, uh, of ethics, of course, when you're doing a restoration on something, because you can't damage it. You, uh, you, it, it, doesn't, it goes against your conscience if, if uh, there's any slight damage to, to a work of art. So you have to proceed very, very cautiously and very carefully, and you start out usually with a magnifying loop, so that you can uh, magnify the area, you learn to where one should start. If, you, for instance, if you're cleaning a painting, there are certain pigments you never start in the darks. <clears throat> you always begin in a well in a in a white area or a or a light area or a sky area uh, or a cloud because the paint is much stronger. It's a combination of uh, several pigments together and. Um, you, and also you can see what you're doing, and you use uh, two swabs, one, one uh, with the solvent that you think is going to, to uh, perform the task of removing varnish or dirt or whatever, and the other one with a diluent, that means it will stop the action immediately if you find that you're going too far. And of course you not only look at the painting, but you look at the cotton, the swabs that you're using. And you go in very, very small areas until you're certain that you're on the right track. If you start on uh, working on a painting after a good, solid examination, and it's best to get a second opinion if you can, talk with other people, and a, um, then you know from past experience, hopefully, what you think might work. And if there's perhaps something a little less strong than what you'd plan to do, try that. And you work gradually up until you feel that you've got the right solvent or detergent. Now, uh, most paintings have been varnished, but most of them have a layer of dirt, maybe even nicotine. Now, solvents as such, chemical solvents, will will not uh, touch these unless they're so strong they go through these to the varnish underneath, but that's not the way to begin. What you want to do first is to get the dust and the dirt off the grime, which may be mixed a little with the varnish, but at least you've got to get that off as as much as you can. So first what you've done is to remove the grime. Then you start on the little more difficult part of cleaning the the varnish coating that is given the painting, the so-called Old Master Glow, which is really only dirty varnish. I suppose it's like a doctor, before you start operating, you've got to know and you've got to not only know but watch what other people do and remember what they do and why they do it.
1: You can find much more about George Stout, the Monuments Men, and Carol F. Wells on our website, where many relevant papers have been digitized, including Stout's diaries. Digitization is a vital tool for libraries, archives, and museums to make their materials more accessible for wider audiences, but it is an expensive and labor-intensive process. While restoration and conservation focus on protecting the original object, digitization offers a way to make it available for many more researchers without putting the object at risk through frequent handling. Julia Simic, Assistant Head of Digital Scholarship Services, Digital Production and Preservation at the University of Oregon Libraries, told us about the limits and challenges that institutions face in preserving and presenting objects digitally.
0: We can't preserve everything. We just don't have that capacity. We need resources. Those resources are a business plan it's funding so that we can cover our costs it's a sustainability plan so that we can not only maintain the objects but maintain the program that supports maintaining the objects it's also an investment in building the skills of the people who are going to be doing this work and as far as technology you know the big one is storage storage space costs money beyond that we need the softwares and the tools And we need people to take care of security so that, you know, things don't get corrupt. But there's also that kind of bigger organizational infrastructure that I mentioned, which is about policies and maintaining some strategic goals over time and supporting strategic goals that support the institution. There's putting in the processes that are supporting best practices. And like I say, there's staffing as well. Not all of this all isn't automatic. So when we think about selectivity, we have to think about the impact of what we are keeping in terms of all of that support that's needed, all that infrastructure. And what we do at the University of Oregon, just to be particular for a moment, is that we curate what we keep over time, what we preserve. We have to. We just don't have the resources to maintain everything. So we prioritize things that are based in the collections that we have. So special collections got papers from someone and part of those papers are on their computer hard drive. We have to think about how do we maintain those born digital assets in a way that we'll be able to access them at a later time. We preserve things like nitrate film, which is Digitizing a physical piece of film that will act as a surrogate when we know that nitrate is going to disappear one day. Um, we do the same thing for newspapers. Um, we microfilmed newspapers since the 60s, I think, at the University of Oregon. And that was an attempt to preserve the newspaper, which was on wood, cheap wood pulp paper and it was deteriorating. We moved it to um, microfilm. And now, the microfilm is very stable, but it's more or less unusable or on the way to being unusable because the format itself is becoming obsolete. So we digitize that and now we have these digital files that we're preserving and someday we're going to have to you know, move those digital files to a different format as well so that they maintain integrity and usefulness.
10: Cultural
2: heritage doesn't stop with the objects themselves, though. It also includes the legacies they encode and convey. Mira Nakashima, an architect and furniture designer, described the mantle of tradition she inherited from her father, George Nakashima, who was also a celebrated furniture designer, and the efforts required to carry on a tradition while making it one's own in her 2010 oral history.
11: The artistic traditions are really difficult to pass on from one generation to the other. You probably know in Mashiko, uh, Shoji Hamada had a, a beautiful thing going, and his son was also a potter, but his son is not carrying on his, his studio or his work. After Dad passed around, there was our the same Japanese friend who was um, talking about good ego and bad ego, right. was saying that in Japan there are three different ways that tradition is passed on. One is that the tradition passes on exactly as it always was, like the Urasenke tea ceremony school. You're not allowed to change anything, as far as I know, within the Urasenke tradition. And then there is another one like the the Sogetsu form of flower arrangement. They have traditions which have been passed on from generation to generation, but the new master is supposed to develop something of his own. And that is, you know, it's not a totally distinctly different branch, but it is, it's, it's still, you know, a branch of the same tree, but it is different. And then in the kabuki tradition, you can pass on the name of an actor from one generation to the next. It's not necessarily a relative or a you know, child even, but it, it's an actor who takes the same name but has a completely different style. He just has the name. And he says there's, you know, those three ways of passing on tradition mm-hmm. – are well-known in Japan, and uh, he thought that we were more like the Sogetsu tradition and, and that that I should develop. And in in the States, you have to establish your own legitimacy as a designer. You can't just do the same old thing, or you're considered doing reproductions. And there's uh, <coughs> a fellow named Babe Bell, who has the Modern Gallery in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. who was extremely—he sold— Nakashimas before dad passed away from the mid 80s. He used to sell the so-called secondhand Nakashimas before they were called vintage. And then after dad passed away, his market started going up, but nobody was willing to accept the fact that I could do it also. So he was very kind and sponsored a, a show for me. I think he had dad's work as well, but he sponsored a show of, of the new designs that I had developed after dad passed away in 94. I think that brought us back to life, as well as the Michener uh, Memorial mm-hmm. Room that mm-hmm. I designed and built in 93. Um, it established me as a person, a designer in my own right, as distinct from dad, but still mm. carrying on the Nakashima tradition. And it's tough, because in, in the States and in the Western world, that's not a legitimate thing to do. In the Far East, it's, it's important and right. respected, but not in the West
2: family traditions spill into larger cultural currents and our connections with those who came before us and those who will come after us. In her 2010 oral history with Mija Redel, Catherine Lahua Domingo, a fiber artist and master lahala weaver in Hawaii, contextualized the traditions and intimacy of craft within the broader waves of globalization and depersonalizing pursuits of profit she witnessed over her career.
6: Have
12: you seen many changes in weaving in Hawaii in your lifetime? Have you seen a lot of... I've, certainly there's been a revival of the traditions. We've talked about increasing experimentation, and it seems like the younger generation is beginning to experiment even more so. They're taking what they've
6: learned. Yes. Yeah. We see that many different styles when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I guess because they wove for necessities. Mm-hmm. So they if they got fancy, whichever, it was probably just for within the family I or see. of that concept. Mm-hmm. Maybe not that much for selling. Right. As much as you know just putting them out. Mm-hmm. Whereas today Oh, you have a wide variety, many weavers, mm-hmm. many, many new ones that are interested mm-hmm. and do beautiful work, beautiful work. It's gone. Yes. It's gone, yes. And I think it's a, it's a huge asset that it has. Was at one time it was felt that it was good to be lost. Mm-hmm art of weaving. So we've got to be gentle too, cousin Gladys, Auntie Esther, and Elizabeth, for reviving it mm-hmm. and really sitting down, you know, sharing the knowledge with as many as they could mm-hmm. share it with, teaching others, having them become teachers.
12: I have a question about sharing The tradition with others so it wouldn't be lost something that you mentioned was that auntie gladys at one point was going to write a book and then she decided not to um because she didn't want the tradition to be lost in another way beyond people of hawaii is my understanding of it that seems like a, a a difficult middle ground to, to navigate, how, how does one choose how to share that tradition and help it grow, but there was at the same time a, a decision not
6: to make a book? I've thought of that myself too. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard, mm-hmm. but I can understand why mm-hmm. it's important. Mm-hmm. Why is it important, do you think? Because it belongs to our culture. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like the Hopis and their weaving mm-hmm. their blankets. Mm-hmm. It's a part of their culture, right? So I can understand the importance. We don't have very many things left. Mm-hmm. So many things they were taken away from us. Mm-hmm. So if you know we can keep something really belong to us, I can understand. Mm-hmm. The factor behind it—it mm-hmm. it is food for thought. Mm-hmm. Those are things that um, you know. They decided that oh no, we we don't need to have that kind of laws. Made it open to everybody, mm-hmm. and look what's happening to our fishing grounds—they mm-hmm. become yeah. lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I. You know, all people did things because of, there was a reason behind those things. They were here many years before us. They tried several things. They knew that it didn't work. And if they continued being spendthrift, whichever, they're going to one day be without. So I think the whole world needs to learn to be respectful of each other. Respecting our culture is a very, very good and we definitely try to teach our children that, grandchildren, the generations that follow. Mm-hmm. Be respectful of the land, of course, and others. Mm-hmm. So I can understand the reasoning mm-hmm. behind that. We don't have very many things left that are ours. Mm-hmm.
12: Sounds like you think about the entire process as being part of the final hat. It's not just about coming up with a hat, it's about harvesting the leaves, it's about caring for the tree. It's the entire process that matters. That's right,
6: yeah. And I think it comes from inside, mm-hmm. inside, uh, and that's what shows on the hats. Mm-hmm. I think somehow the weavers, mm-hmm. the person is in their hat, you know, I, I wove this hat, mm-hmm. I'm a part of this hat. Mm-hmm. Margaret wear mm-hmm. that hat, you know. Mm-hmm. You can see Mom in that hat. Mm-hmm. And same thing with Susie. Mm-hmm. I think that makes the difference. Mm-hmm.
1: Preservation also means caring for our communities, our neighbors, our futures, and ourselves. In his 2014 oral history, art historian Tomasi Barro-Frausto, who is a leading expert on and advocate for Chicano art in the United States, delves deeply into these questions as they pertain to his life as a collector and scholar, and how different facets of preservation emerge through different angles of identity.
13: I'm very much interested in the, in, in how artists depict their own world, the world that they live in for themselves, but also for others, because it's a problem with so called ethnic art that the people outside that ethnic community don't understand what is being pictured. Carmen Lomas Garza is a, is a wonderful example because she's universal in the sense that the things that she talks about, community, family, togetherness, all of these are universal ideas but she does it in a particular idiom which is uh, of southwest texas and so somebody in new york seeing an exhibit of carmen lomas garza's work really can't get into it because they don't understand the meaning of piñata they don't understand the meaning of a lot of the of the real and yet they're universal because the person watching in new york would have other similar things in her or his culture and so there's a connection but but it has to be explained Mm -hmm. and and so one of the things that in all of my collecting revolves around this notion of the internal and the external there are things that are around us that we understand because it's part of our heritage but there are things outside of our tradition that we also understand in a different way they're also part of our heritage and so mexican american means a combination of the mexican and the american and so how to deal with how to put those two things together went way back to like when i was interested in the european gaze of 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 the of the uh the new world and then their gaze about themselves the costumbrismo paintings and so on so that that push and pull between the my the world that's familiar because I, i i live it and the world that's external that i learn about the bridging of the of the local and the global or is everywhere and everyone does it so all of a sudden it's not a problem but in art history or whatever it all, all always when they deal with american ethnic art it becomes a problem but in american art it's it you can see that you know that a lot of american artists bring their own traditions and depicted with an, with a us spin as it were
2: In her two thousand six Oral History, Neda Al Halali, a fiber artist known for her large installations, talks about her work inscribing her within a rich human tradition, even as many perceived weaving to be in decline.
14: I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky. You know, that I was put in a time and a place where I could do where I could do all these in- crazy things and and you know intricate things and wild things and woolly things that I had the chance to do all these things not their energy you know whatever blew through me or whatever I had in myself I was able to I know I did my best to I did my best uh, for to pass it on or to you know give it back Mm -hmm. but on the other hand it's just like uh, one barely can live because everywhere one looks it's uh, the women that I'm part of that chain and it's Elimin- being eliminated that is gone that is gone all the heritage it's like a garden that's that's just being bulldozed and it's all over we can find traces here and there but basically it's it's being killed you know like the the growing our our environment is being killed this life form is being killed too and it's there's nothing and that's how it is you can try your best to, you know, tell people some people tell people about it, or teach some people. It's still, something you know, but it's all just like it's almost all like memory, and I'm glad for every corner, every instance that I hear or see, hear about, or see where well, the hand is still alive. Mm-hmm.
2: Julia Simic, Assistant Head of Digital Scholarship Services, Digital Production and Preservation at the University of Oregon Libraries reminded us that digital files are subject to the same forms of deterioration and that making materials available online is the start of a much longer journey with preservation and accessibility.
0: Digital preservation is important because digital files are ultimately ephemeral, just like any other format is ephemeral. It's just a matter of time before it disappears or it becomes unusable. When you preserve something, you're protecting an investment you already made, right? You spent a lot of money and worked hard at something. You spent a lot of time at digitizing something, but that was just the beginning, right? After that comes the preservation part. And the preservation part is ongoing. It goes forever. This is an obligation. Everything you choose to preserve is an obligation that takes resources and know-how and a strategy in order to implement and carry out. So that's what I want people to know. Digitization is is the beginning of the process.
1: And textile conservator, Laura Mina told us about what makes her work continually rewarding. Maybe one that I worked on a few years ago, but I think might be a good example of
3: sort of all of the different ways that, that my work unfolds is a sampler that I worked on when I was in a postgraduate fellowship at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's a sampler made in 1832 by Susanna Gillies Smith, who lived in Scotland. And a curator wanted to include it in an exhibit because it's an incredibly beautifully worked sampler. The quality of the needle work is just breathtaking. And also, um, so the sampler has alphabets, numbers, um, lots of fun plants and animals, family initials. So, it was really desirable to be included in this exhibit. But at some point in the past, someone had decided to try to clean the sampler, I'm sure with good intentions to make it look better. But they didn't test the embroidery threads to make sure that the dye um, wouldn't start moving around in the water. And the dye did move around in the water. So, all of the green embroidery threads, that dye migrated from the threads into the ground fabric and just created this really um, sort of puddled green effect where you couldn't really see the fineness of the embroidery stitches anymore. It was a few hundred hours of work, but it was really cool because I felt like I was there with the creator getting to think about all of those little tiny micro decisions that she had made while working on the sampler herself. So I really felt like I was in her shoes (laughs) to a certain extent working on this piece. And I thought about the Philadelphia Museum of Art has this amazing encyclopediatic collection. But I think like most encyclopediatic museums, women artists are underrepresented and certainly children creators are, are very underrepresented. And so it really occurred to me that the sampler is this special, nearly unique exception where it's a work of art created by a young girl that's really treasured and displayed um, as a masterwork at um, showing off this incredible skill uh, and incredible creativity in a fine art museum. And it gave me a different way of thinking about something that I had just sort of taken for granted previously in my life. And for me, that's part of what makes museums special, is that you get to see new things you never saw before, but you also get a chance to see familiar things in a new light. So in with all of the chemistry that I was thinking about, about how to deal with this dye problem that had happened... It also gave me a different way about thinking about, you know, this young girl in the 1830s asking these philosophical questions about the meaning of life um, that I was now getting to, to revisit with her in a way.
10: For show notes, work cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Archives of American Art. It was edited by Hannah Heffman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. Special thanks to Susan Carey and Lindsay Bright for narrating this episode. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website aaa.si.edu/support. Thank you.